Hello and welcome to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. I'm Jenny Stevenson, your host, and joining me is Dr. Peter Bernstein. Today we're continuing in our series on how to survive through adversity. Dr. Bernstein, or Peter as he likes to be called, is a coach and mentor with 49 years of experience helping people survive and grow through trauma, struggles, and hard times, the stuff of real life. The goal of our series is to help you discover what we've experienced, that adversity is more than a trial to endure. It can be an exciting opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive. I love to listen to Jenny's introductions <clears throat> because we do specialize really in people helping people recover from trauma. But I'll tell you, one of the wonderful things about this series that we're doing is it's really good for us too. Because we go through so much, we're on the front lines, too. We're not sitting back watching others only. Boy, is that the truth. No, we're in it, and we're in deep. And um, and I don't know if we, after, up to this point, after what we've learned and what we know, I don't think we'd have, I don't know if I'd have it any other way, except I could use a little bit more time off because all our team is getting really tired. We are. I hope we don't sound tired today. We no. we came in thinking let's, you know, let's make sure we've got energy because we have something really important that we want to share. We do. Yeah. And we have a lot. And it's been a very active week, very diverse uh, with caregiving, um, dealing with adversity and struggle and suffering. There's been a lot of it yes. uh, in our area. Last week, we dedicated our show to the first responders. I don't want to leave them out. Yeah, the, um, the context for that was the Kincaid Fire. Kincaid Fire that, and other uh, fires, too. is a little bit more under control now. It's, it's still going, but uh, up in the uh, Geyserville area here, just north of Sonoma County, where we're located. It's been incredible. Uh, it's amazing how these things put you through so much, and then they pass through and you go on with your life. But plenty of people have been affected and impacted um, They're still fighting the fire now. Yeah, and there's thousands of these first responders doing this, and they're exhausted. I've seen them, and they're wiped out. But they are some of the folks we've been talking about who are following a calling upon their lives instead of avoiding the difficult conditions of life. they're, they're, They're drawn to helping into protecting people, into fighting these destructive fires and putting their own lives on the line is the truth of the matter and uh, working these incredible shifts. I mean, they're yeah. to them, 20 hours, is, is if they have to, they do it. Um, um, I, I just am so touched. They've always been my favorite group of people to work with. You called them diamonds in the rough. That's right, and they are. They may not have the polish and the education of a medical doctor, or a psychologist, but I'll be honest with you, with what I've seen they know, frontline work and the training they do, they're extremely impressive. But what really impresses me is their heart and what good down-to-earth people they are. Yes. Um, I've had the experience, and it's been a precious experience, many times of working with them, having them come to our institute and helping us when we were needing their help, helping us with my wife more than once. Um, and they've helped me with other people. They have been just remarkably impactful, uh, professional, and heartfelt. Yeah. And what really I love about it is they're so human, and they're so genuine and down-to-earth. 
And uh, there are many times I've stood there after they've done, and I've seen tears in your eyes. They're so inside. They're they're tough on the outside, most of them. Mm-hmm. And the inside, they have a heart of gold. They are they're caring, just compassionate, empathetic people. Giving people. Yeah. And boy, do their do their lives suffer because of what they do. I mean, you can't avoid it. Um, they go through a lot, and some of the statistics and some of the things that uh, we've we've learned about them we have some to share today that are appalling they're appalling and they're devastating and i know caregivers in them as a whole we give so much of ourselves but we don't really have statistics about the after effects except that we get really exhausted and can burn out we don't like that but when we, we uh, I want to, before we go to the, I want to talk about some people we met with last week that I'm going to have on the show. We will, right? We uh, would love to, yes. Yeah. We're hoping that happens. And um, Jenny will t- tell you about them. Um, Sue Farron Sue and Ron Schull mm-hmm. of First Responder Resiliency Incorporated. And I do want to acknowledge that we were connected with Sue and Ron through a generous donor to our nonprofit, Sonoma Coast Trauma Treatment, that sponsors our, our podcast. And he made a donation and said, I know of this organization, of Sue and Ron's work, and he knew enough about what we were doing to think that it would be a good idea for us to get to know each other. And was he right? He was right on the button. Because these are marvelous people. These are great people. She was a first responder for 30 years a paramedic, and he was a firefighter for 30 years. Santa Rosa Fire. Yeah, great people. Um, they're working very hard because they, where we special, we don't, we've been working with caregivers. A lot of them are domestic caregivers and dealing with the process, helping people with dying and sickness and reaching death. Um, there's other caregivers too, doctors, nurses, and that's how we started in our manual. It was for doctors and nurses and uh, embedded um, combat crisis treatment teams. Mm-hmm. Well, first responders are a pretty darn important part of the caregiving population. Um, they're in really wonderful people. A lot of them, uh, many of them are my friends. I think the world of them. And I also have seen what really concerns me is the after effects. Even though they are my friends, um, I see what they can do afterwards for self-care, and it's not good mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, a lot of, after after the traumas that they are, they're first responders, they're usually the first people to be called in on gruesome accidents and gruesome, terrible things. It affects them. Adults I've, and children. That's right. And I've yes. debriefed a number of them afterwards, they trusted me, and it's just heart wrenching to hear what they have faced and the effects that it has it afterwards. Yeah. But I do know that their self medication is it's almost like a culture of alcohol, uh, drugs, um, t- difficulty in their domestic life, personal lives. It's very serious because I mean, the divorce rate's 70%. And that's one of our statistics that yeah. we got from Sue and Ron. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the suicide rate is, isn't it 10 times the norm? 
Swala, shall I want me to read, yeah, read these? I took this right off of the website uh, for our First Responder Resiliency, Inc., a, a nonprofit headed up by Sue Farron and Ron Schull, and yeah. they share these with us, too, yeah. and we met with them last week. The, their statistics are that the average life expectancy uh, for first responders is 15 years less than for civilians. They said that they, it is suspected that only 35% of first responder suicides are reported, that first responders are now 40% more likely to die of suicide than in the line of duty, that the divorce rate for first responder families is 70%. You know, to me, those are sobering facts about some remarkable people. And it's heartbreaking because these are some pretty special people. Yeah. And, you know, one of the basic themes to everything we talk about is facing adversity and not running away from it and embracing and being drawn into the condition of life that most people would avoid and do avoid because it's, it's probably the darkest, most difficult condition of life. Life and death, helping others that are facing it, um, helping them through it for first responders, saving them from as much tragedy on a pretty big scale lately. Yeah. Um, and watching the heartbreak of hundreds of thousands of people being evacuated and fleeing. And then fighting these massive fires that are consuming. They're so big. When I see the pictures of it, it just is mind-blowing. And these guys are, and women too. Yeah. Go right in that. They're fighting. They're on the front lines. It just is uh, very touching. And I've also seen them on a more individualized basis. We call them when people are in need help at our institute. Or, and they'll come as a team. They're remarkable. They so really are. They face trauma in two different ways. And I know we'll want to get to this. They have the trauma of their own experiences and the own dangers, the own risks, the own injuries, the own challenges personally when they're in these situations. And then they have what we call either secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, and I, I don't know if we wanted to get into the differences, of being uh, working with, being uh, in contact with people who have experienced trauma, mm -hmm. uh, and to either witness the trauma that the other person goes through or to hear about it is part of their role as a caregiver. Uh, and being if impacted and affected by it. Steve, our producer, said that uh, over 5,000 firefighters are still uh, working on the Kincaid. Right. That's right. I read that too. Five thousand. Yeah. yeah. And they're coming from as far away as Oregon. Yeah. To to uh, deal with it. Yeah, I know. Um, let Let me just. What drops, Steve? I, I just our producer. He tells me not to make noise on the table and listen to this over there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see what I was what I was thinking. You were talking about um, that they were uh, on uh, on the line. Yeah. And um, mm. the the trauma that they were being exposed to, okay. and secondary and vicarious trauma. Yeah, and you can't help but be impacted by the trauma of folks that are going through such horrible times. And I've seen first responders on the front lines doing incredible work, and then I see them stepping back, and tears are in their eyes, and they're broken. I've seen it more than one time after they do what they need to do or even some of the team members are watching because not everybody can do it, and I've seen it. 
And it's a devastating thing, and it, it touches my heart every time I work with them or see them. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I love them. And at Christmas time, I always make sure I find some of the first responder teams and give them some Christmas gifts. Yeah. Um, and after they've done a job for us, I always go over and thank them afterwards. I don't know if other people do it, but I sure do. And I hope they're listening to it. Because now that I yes. remember, I brought some of the brochures and flyers for this to some of the first responder teams in our area. Um, God, I hope this helps them. But anyway, talking, of, we're going to have Sue and Ron on. Um, these are wonderful people, and we're basically on the same page very, as far as self-care. So we had very similar ways of, of seeing the effects of this, uh, the, their work, and the risks and the, the, the things that need to be addressed, that they want to address. How about if we come back? Sure. Uh, we're going to, uh, you've been listening to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. We have been talking, just getting started, we've been talking about first responders mm -hmm. and the the, uh, the incredible uh, sacrifice, dedication that they bring to their job, either as firefighters, EMTs, uh, we're talk we, police, the police. police. We're uh, talking a little bit about the Kincaid fire that's still happening mm -hmm. to the north of us. Uh, 5,000 firefighters still on the job. We're talking about how do first responders deal with the trauma they've either witnessed or experienced themselves, and what can get in the way of their uh, efforts to remain healthy and on the job because the statistics are appalling about the personal yeah. health and relationship fallout yeah. that they experience. Self-care is not one of their strong points. And I know that's why Sue and Ron, who've had years of experience, and the other thing you forgot to mention is that the cancer rate for first responders is just astronomical because of the distress levels and the adrenaline that's always pumping and it's going into the organs. And there, I've, some of the first responders have cancer, they're fighting cancer. And Sue for cancer, she had terminal cancer and she lived. Um, so, I mean, these folks go through so much and Sue and Ron are so dedicated to bringing self-care awareness and skills and, and practices to the first responder teams. Um, my experience with it, and I hope that, I know that she heard me because we eventually got through, is there's a lot of stigma in, in clinical, uh, first responders are like our Navy SEAL friends. To even mention mental health or mental illness or even assume that um, has so many stigmatizing Im Im impacts in the sense of that means they're not reliable, that means they can't be counted on, that means they're unstable, that means they're sick, that means they're disabled themselves. And instead of getting help, they'd rather go out and drink or do drugs themselves. Um, and their personal lives, their family lives are under tremendous distress. Um, we've seen it. And when I was talking to Sue, I remember trying to emphasize to her what we've learned and what I've learned over almost 50 years. And that is ways to destigmatize the clinical 
approach. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people place a lot of credibility and importance on how how clinical work can really be a big part of self-care. And I agree, except it's it's got to be humanized. It's got to be made to be palatable, understood, being able to be taken in, and where the red flags don't go up the minute you mention Dr. Bernstein or they mention psychology or psychotherapy, and yet many of those things can have great impact. Um, we've done a lot of work um, in the last years to destigmatize and to humanize. Yeah, can you give some, just tell us a little bit more about that. What kinds of things help to humanize and destigmatize? Well, I think one of the things that we do, number one, we don't talk about post traumatic stress disorder. We learned that with the Navy SEALs that we worked with. We call it post traumatic stress. Anyone who deals with as much trauma as they do, everybody has it. And all of a sudden, they call it a clinical or psychiatric disorder, puts it in a whole frame, a different frame of reference. And right away, now we have sick helpers, and they are labeled. And I know with the first responder types in the Navy SEALs, they could have, they would lose their security clearances if they were, I mean, there's so much implication. And I remember that with first responders too, when I worked with them and trained with them, same thing. I remember too that people coming out of the service, whether they were Navy SEALs or not, uh, didn't want anything on their record because uh, also it would make it uh, very difficult for them to be hired in the types of work that they were looking for. And it's for real. Yeah. It's not. It's not fabricated. It's not paranoia. It is. It does happen. Yeah. So uh, we watch that. As far as myself, when I've when I learned a number of years ago about um, this professional. Uh, status that I maintained for so many years and I guess I I made it pretty important to myself when I realized that it was creating a barrier between myself and the people I wanted to reach I didn't have an ego investment anymore and that was I didn't need to be called doctor I didn't need to be associated with mental illness and I didn't want to be because there were so many other areas of pain that these people brought us a lot of times they were in physical pain the emotional component had created physical problems. Also, some of these folks came and they had been injured and disabled, and they didn't want to be considered mentally deranged or just, I mean, whatever, they had all kinds of things that they, that they felt were implicated, and I made it really clear, don't worry about it with me, and you don't have to call me doctor, I don't even want you to look at me that way. I'm here to help you with your pain, and if it's just physical, we'll help you recover from the pain that you're in um, in a way that um, if that works for you, that's good enough. And There were sleep disturbances, too. All of them had to sleep dis- a lot. That was another approach that was helpful and not stigmatizing. Yeah, no, they had a lot of sleep disorders. All of them, everybody, including myself. Yeah. No, that's uh, and you know, sleep is precious, so that's really important. Um, we saw some folks that had been physically injured that would never recover, and were also in awful pain, and they were willing to accept that as a way of life when we could do something to help them recover that way. Mm-hmm. So we'd emphasize that. We didn't call ourselves, we're not MDs. Um, if they were on medication, we would work with the MDs that were attending to them. Um, but honestly, we did not want to feed into anything that made them feel bad about themselves at all. And if anything about our presence did that, then it was time to 
diffuse and diminish that kind of impact. We've done it now for a number of years. I don't think the professions, um, I think they're pretty far behind us in this one. And um, I'm going to be a pretty outspoken person with all the years of experience that I have about this with professionals that maybe it's, you know, the training is so crucial and so important. But to build our identity around that has an effect that it insulates us from other people. And that's not okay, particularly when we're there to serve others, not to dominate them and impress them with how smart we are. Um, we don't have a right to be arrogant. We don't have a right to be self-righteous or, or uh, insensitive. Our job is to be, we're human. We're fellow human beings with special training. That's it. But other than that, it's our heart. It's our caring and our, our empathy for our fellow man that really should dictate our relationships. Now, that may go against the psychiatric design. I personally don't care at this point, and I've been involved in the psychiatric design for years because I believe that's so artificial, and it's not natural, and it's also a barrier many times. Um, so we do what we can to diffuse it. Um, if we have our own pain that we, that's, we've drawn upon to, to gain that empathy, we make sure that we don't hemorrhage our own pain into other people's struggles. And um, we, have we have ways of training um, ongoing for ourselves and for others that we train to make sure that we don't do that. But all of us have come. We wouldn't be in this profession. We wouldn't be a caregiver. We wouldn't be a first responder type if we didn't have trauma from our own past. How can you be this empathetic and heartfelt if you haven't had your own pain in your own life? I have never met one first responder. I have never met one person yet that is really good at this that hasn't had their own traumas and their own pain. Mm -hmm. um, how they've dealt with it or not dealt with it, some of this push it down for years. Yeah. Um, others, who knows, there's so many ways. The folks that push it down, and I certainly was one of them for a long time, they're the ones that have the highest incidence of being triggered. And um, they don't recognize the pain, they don't recognize how it's impacting their bodies. Um, because they spend so much time pushing it down or avoiding it. There's, there's trouble there. But all of us as caregivers have the possibility of being triggered. Why? Because we all get exhausted and depleted. The distress, the demands of the job, the demands of the experience that we're involved in is so devastating that most people don't want to hear about it. They don't even want to look at it. It's just too overpowering. Do I blame them? Not at all. I don't know. I guess if I had my choice, I can't even remember what that would be like. I probably would have been one of those. But I've always been a person that has been, if there's pain or there's a crisis or an emergency, I've always been a person to go to help and to get involved no matter how disastrous it is as it is. And I always have held strong during it. Afterwards is another story. And I have my own ways of coping, which have I've been dealing with this kind of work for a long time. And you found what works for you. I did. I have. And it does work. So I can go back and be somewhat more refreshed and renewed and be willing to go on in the work. I've been doing it a long time, so I know it must be working somehow. That does not mean that I don't go through all the emotional 
upheaval and pain that everybody else does, the fears, the hopelessness, the despair, the discouragement, the anger and frustration, um, the sadness and grief. I go through everything everybody else does. The only difference that I know is I recognize the impact of emotions. I don't believe that's a normal felt state, but I do believe everybody goes through these emotions. I just don't give them the credibility that everything is hopeless and everything is discouraging and everything is terrifying and everything is um, sorrowful and grief-stricken and everything is... All of these things, no. I, I don't give the emotionality that kind of credibility. But do I address it? Oh, you bet I do. Mm-hmm. And I know that if I'm going to stay resilient, and frankly, I look for myself to stay relatively stable, um, I do it on per. I make sure that when I begin to feel a buildup, when I get a chance, I make sure I take some time for myself. Whatever emotions have been built up, I have the techniques, the skills that I've been trained in and train others in to deal with the body impact of uh, the distress on the body, how the body holds and is a reservoir for so much of this emotional pain. Um, and I take care of it because there's no way I'm going to let it make me sick if I can help it um, because the buildup of this kind of stuff is deadly. And we don't want to have that ha- I don't want it to happen. So here I've been, here I sit almost 50 years later, and I have a passion that I've always had. But... I'm also going through probably the greatest distress I've ever had in my life, and that is helping my wife in her last stages of her life. So Steve just flashed something. What did he say? We're getting close to another break. Okay. Well, so I do have that impacting me on top of everything else. Yeah. And I can't deny it, and my heart breaks, and I grieve. It just hits me every once in a while. When it hits, it's strong, and the emotion of it is overwhelming and yet I know what it is and I know how to take care of it not 100% so I'm not a 100 percenter but I do know how to deal with it so I can go on one of the things that I want to talk about and there's a beautiful new article in the op-ed piece of the New York Times today in Uh fact yeah um, and today's the 4th of November November Um, it's called making meaning out of grief and it's very much along the lines of what we've talked about and how out of all the pain and the suffering and struggle, this is real resilience, comes a sense can come a sense of purpose and meaning. We have been talking about Lynn's legacy and how this show is based so much and so much of what we do now with folks and the kind of things we're addressing are based on what we're learning and going by going through what we're going through and helping Lynn. Um, Let's come back to that. We'll get back to it because I Let's think this come is back so to important. It. This is important. Yeah. Yes. You've been listening to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. In our last segment, we were talking about uh, the trauma, stress, distress uh, that first responders take on as part of their work. And 
how that can build up if it if with them if they don't know how to take care of it. Which which, which for all caregivers. For all caregivers. We talked about the real essential importance of destigmatizing and humanizing their experience mm. and the help that is available for them needs to be very clear that we do not stigmatize what has happened to them. It's not a disease. It's not an illness. It's not a disorder. It is a natural response to what they have been through. We can address it in different ways, either physically through pain or sleep disorders. Uh, we can approach helping them in many ways, as long as we are compassionate human beings reaching out to them uh, with some skills that can help them. Well, I would take it one step further than compassion. I would say empathy. And the empathy means we've been through it ourselves or we're going through it. And it's much deeper and much stronger and much more heart-to-heart -heart even than compassion. Compassion is important, but empathy is the gold standard for relating. Um, I know Sue and Ron of First Responders Resiliency stressed that, that for them, uh, they are setting this up and the people that are reaching out to other first responders are have been first responders. They're retired now, but they are reaching out. They know that the first responders will know that they know they will have empathy. They'll know what they've been through. Okay, and that's the positive, and we spoke to them about that. We also have a lot of experience with that. Um, with peer group support, and um, we certainly worked with that with the Navy SEALs and the Marines, especially. I'm not a proponent of peer group support after a point, and I'll tell you why. Because there's two parts to it. Number one, what Sue and Ron said is true. To hear it from someone who's been there, there's a lot of empathy and identifying and understanding for sure. But there's another part to it that's not so good. And I've seen this happen over and over again, is you put a bunch of people together that have suffered through a lot, and uh, they can just begin to hemorrhage into the group and support each other's hemorrhaging without coming through with anything more positive, more constructive, uh, re directed in a way that would be really helpful. And I've seen this with Alzheimer's Association groups. I've seen it with Redwood Caregiver. These are all excellent organizations, by the way. But I've seen the quality of the, the groups. It depends on the quality of the yeah, facilitator. the facilitator. I believe that you've got to have a professional who's got more objectivity now. I'm not talking about removed and cold and professional, but where they have enough experience that they can see when things are going off and they're just, the hemorrhaging is starting to just become like a, a, a what do you call it, like a storm building. Yeah. And a lot of these groups I've seen it happen, and you know what? They go no place. So I want to ask you, because I, I want to be clear for the people listening to our podcast, there is value in talking through things you, that have absolutely, happened to you. Absolutely, absolutely. So what is the difference between the, the talking that can be valuable and emotional hemorrhaging? Okay. Well, for emotional hemorrhaging, it's really a whole lot of people identifying um, with the pain and feeding each other's pain and uh, creating like a, a, a snowballing effect um, with things going no place but getting worse and worse, losing perspective um, and just sinking behind the 
the pain that they're in. If they're, I've seen at times there's a bitterness and a resentment that can come up because it's part of, hey, it's part of the stress levels. But you get a couple of strong people that are so bitter and angry, and they can dominate a peer group and just take it down a very bitter, resentful, uh, negative pl place. And there's nobody to intervene and stop it. And to me, that is very destructive. And yet I've seen it over and over again. So I look at this, you know, I look at what we're talking about today as serious problems that call for serious gold standard solutions. And I, when I say gold standard, I mean it should be the finest facilitation and help, not nickel and diming it to save money in, a, in an organization. Um, you got to look at what we're dealing with, and these people deserve the finest we can give them. Um, I do believe that we can, now that I've seen it myself and been part of it, um, I feel that our organization can help put this on a better track. I really That's why I'm talking about it today. So I don't believe peer group support is enough. And if it feeds the hemorrhaging and just makes it worse, that's not okay. Um, but the part of talking about it and being able to talk it through, well, that's, that's a different thing. Um, I find that that's really important to know you're not alone that there's others that understand what you're going through because they've been there or they're going through it too. That, that's very, very valuable. Um, and they do understand because they've been there or they're there now. Um, and that all of a sudden gives you a sense of you're not alone. You're not isolated. Um, you're not insulated from the rest of the world. Those things to me are crucial. Um, the part about dealing with the emotionality and the emotional content of the experience. I haven't seen many of these groups know how to really clear that out. They can touch on it because people will overflow with emotion to a point. Um, but honestly... Uh, well, one of the things that we always stress is that to clear the emotionality is more than just verbal. Uh, there's a physical component got, to I've that never, as well. I and I know it. Sue and Ron acknowledge that too. But yeah, very much so. Yeah. Sue and Ron are on the same page we are, except their specialty is first responders. And they do know that how important the body is as the reservoir for accumulating all of this stress and how important it is to be able to read your body and understand who you are, understand the impact of your own traumas. Because when you begin to um, be exposed to other people's, and then you get these vicarious traumatizations or secondary, you're taking on other people's pain and energy, and you've got to know that you've got to deal with that and discharge it. We help people in trauma recovery oh, so much of the time deal with the accumulation in their body and the pain and the memories that are just flooding them. And, and what's really interesting is to watch when we take them through these recovery sessions, how afterwards they're clear again and they're, they're ready to deal with life again and they're ready to go back to what they've got to do, but they're not carrying an emotional charge that is so high that it's distorting their whole perspective and their whole, and all of a sudden, they're, you know, if it, it is distorting it, they feel hopeless, discouraged, angry, despairing, um, grief-stricken, sorrowful, you name it, and it consumes everything. Mm -hmm. So it could be part of their past, but it also is coloring their present. Their present work, their present life, their present relationships. Absolutely. So we do a lot to clear that. And then they do need mentoring, and they do need coaching, and they do need support. Peers can, you know, peer group work can be wonderful that way. 
if it's facilitated by someone who can keep it on track in a positive way. Right. Um, good intention peer groups aren't enough. And we saw it with the SEALs at times that broke my heart when I saw really these people would die for their brothers, and some did. Um, I'm thinking, I always think of, what's his name? Um, Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle. And he was a, he, his heart for and his guilt burden, for, he, he had helped so many, covered for so many Marines and was such an incredible sniper. And yet he always felt guilt ridden and burdened because he hadn't, there were too many he couldn't help. So somebody gets in touch with him, a Marine who's psychotic, the mother calls, she's terrified, she not know what to do. The first thing they do, and the VA encouraged it. Take him to a firing range. Let him get his, work some of this out. And the guy turned around and killed both Chris and his partner. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that Chris is a good man, and they were they meant well. But we've seen it with interns that we've had too. His all of a sudden their common sense goes right out the window, and they need some support to go. Wait a minute, this man's psychotic. Don't put a gun in his hand. And yet nobody did that. And the VA actually encouraged, well, we'll show you, we'll take him out shooting, you know, you can help him that way. It's, it's a poor idea. Um, so, and, and who was more competent in that way is Chris and, his, and others. And yet, look what happened. Mm-hmm. We've seen that kind of thing many times. Good intentions, they would die for their brethren. Yeah, the good intentions override their their um, common sense or their or perspective that, that they need to have. At home. At home. They're so skilled in the field yeah. and in battle, but when it comes to coming home, they got to understand it's a different world, and they've got to know how to deal with it, and they don't. So yeah. we feel that it kind of education and facilitation and help is very important. Um to, let's say, using Chris Kyle as an example, we would have helped him with the emotional content of the guilt that he was carrying. And he was carrying battlefield guilt that was so intense. He was carrying it in his body, mm-hmm. not just his mind. Mm-hmm. We would get that discharged and get, get the energy and the emotion and the memories cleared up so he could move on with his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may take time, but it would have been worth it. That's our approach, and it's worked with thousands of people. And you would combine it with the mentoring Absolutely. that you do. Absolutely, and because you got to give them, after that's discharge, you got to give them some new perspectives, some new tools, some new skills that they don't have. So they need to be coached through life mm-hmm. and mentored and consulted, and that's totally legitimate, by the way. So we, we do that, and we do believe in it. Um, getting back to first responders, caregivers, well, self-care is, is lacking. What we want to do, though, is we want to get rid of the stigma. We want to take that barrier away. Um, and I know we, we met with Sue and Ron and had a really good coming together. It took me a while to get through. And, you know, this is Dr. Peter, Dr. Bernstein, da 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 And I could hear the stigma of the emphasis on therapy and treatment and how it was thrust out there. And Sue meant well. I know she wants to do the best. So does Ron. Frankly... I was I was feeling the stigma of like I was being I was put off not by them no by just that hearing that label and I'm going no that's got to find another way to say it that doesn't have such a sting it's stinging me and um, that's what you don't want to do so we put a great deal of emphasis on humanizing here's the thing and this is where this all came from is when you're a caregiver first responder. Um, we're up against situations that eventually we are at our 
limit. We're over our limit in the sense of we don't have any more control. This is, for me, this is the worst part it's of It's so every- hard for people who want to come in and rescue and help to find that there is, they can't do everything. Absolutely. They can't save everything. And i got to tell you, that's one of my most painful issues um, with that, um, is just that. Because when I feel I want to do more, and I keep trying, and I can't, I have to accept what's going on, and i got to just offer comfort and reassurance and protection and love during these very difficult times. Well, most people say that you're doing more than anybody we know, and yet inside I'm saying, but I'm not doing enough. I can't figure out what else to do. I want to do more. So many times I can torment myself. It's anguish that I can't do more. Well, most of us as caregivers want to do more. And yet we're going to reach a point, if we're on the front lines, just as the first responders are, we are not going to always be able to control the outcome of everything that we're up against. That thrusts us back into our own humanity. It strips us to the authentic person that we are. And part of what we have to accept is, well, we're limited human beings, and we can't do everything. And these situations we're up against are so overpowering usually because we're taking on such huge challenges that we can't do everything that needs to be done. And sometimes we have to accept the diff- such difficulties and back off and face our own inadequacies, our own limitations. They're painful. I find that very painful. And for first responders, these kind of situations can be life and death. Absolutely, and for first, and not just first responders, caregivers. For caregivers too. You're, that's what we're on the front lines of, dying, Absolute life and death. Life and death. Yeah. You've been listening to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. In our last segment, and today we're talking about um, resilience um, and uh, trauma in uh, for first responders. And we were talking, uh, went a little bit over some of the, the positives and the drawbacks, the negatives of, of peer uh, support, peer group work for first responders. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into that because I want to make sure we have as much time as possible in our last segment here to go uh, to something that Peter mentioned just before our second break. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, the incredible value of making meaning, and I'm quoting here, making meaning out of grief. Yeah. And, and, and we could add out of trauma. And Absolutely. I'm looking at an article here that you found this morning, and so let's let's look at that. We're on the same page. That's just where I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, the, the name of the article, by the way, you can get it in the uh, New York Times. It's called "Making Meaning Out of Grief." It's a new. Uh, it's an article, I think, uh, by, by Jane, Jane Brody. Brody. Uh-huh. This is in her personal health column. Yeah, and I think the, the under the heading of it, it says, "Loss is simply what happens to you in life. Meaning is what you make happen." And we've been talking about that quite a bit. And um, there's so many examples. And this is where two things happen. 
In other words, we are going to go through very difficult, painful trauma, either helping others or losing, going through very difficult times, which we've talked about, which makes us very susceptible and vulnerable um, to being broken down and, and ourselves. <coughs> but there's a way ahead of dealing with this, and I've always been, that's always been my, what my life is like, and that is taking some very painful, difficult, agonizing experiences, losses, future losses, and finding the purpose and how to go use it to be able to come alongside others and help them in a more uh, impactful, empathetic way. It doesn't alleviate the grief, I'll tell you that right now, but it does, it does cause a, a way of coping that good can come out of even the worst of things. It's the hope that goes along with these very difficult times. This book that is, uh, Jane Brody writes about is absolutely reiterating what we're talking about. And I'll give you an example, a couple of examples she brought up, but I've known so many, and I know most first responders and caregivers have gone through similar experiences. But she, one of the examples she was using is uh, a woman... Uh, was, uh, uh, I think it was in New York City, and she was, her her child was outside and got killed right in front of her and hit by a car. And it was from the reckless driving in New York City. And if you've ever been in New York City, and I, I grew up in New Jersey and New York, it's dangerous. <laughs> um, anyway, it was horrible. She witnessed the death of her, I think it was a 12-year-old, forgive me if the details are wrong. But out of that, for the next seven years, she devoted herself to to some kind of absolute. It was legislation to to put in cameras. Exactly, and make the streets safer, so other mothers wouldn't have to go through the agony, and the could. And she wanted to help other mothers be able to see their children grow up mm -hmm. and not being endangered by this, the uh, reckless driving in New York City. It finally, after seven years, was passed. Yeah. So she took her loss, and out of her loss, she created a purpose and a meaning so she could help others. That's just one example of so many. Now, if you look at most caregivers and most first responders, if they're really honest, you'll see that they've gone through other things that brought them to the point of being drawn into this, I call it a calling in life. And so they could do good for others um, and help others out of what happened to them in their own life. Could have been hopelessness, it could have been loss, it could have been death and dying, it could have been lots of things. But out of it, um, they developed a new ability. It's biblical. Even in the Bible, I think Second Corinthians, right in the beginning, says God comes alongside us when we're going through difficulties so that we can come alongside others and have a heart for them. Well, yeah. we had Teresa Lyons on our show a couple of weeks ago, a hospice nurse here in Petaluma, and she uh, had definitely, this had happened in her life. She had experienced the death of her, of her sister and mm -hmm. her father yeah. in ways that uh, motivated her to improve to work in the field of death and dying mm -hmm. and humanizing it and making it more open and uh, 
uh, comforting as uh, the process. And she's a gift. Yeah. She's a gift to the hospice movement. Yeah. And there's many others, too. Not everybody, but I know a lot of gifted people. They all have had tremendous pain in their lives. Yeah. And out of that, they found meaning, a new purpose in life. I have got to say, I'm in the midst of it with my wife, but we're already doing that. And the empathy I have now goes so far beyond anything that I ever had as a professional, as a psychologist and psychotherapist for 49 years. That's why I don't even identify myself that way anymore. That's one of the main reasons. Being human and discovering an empathy that to me is so precious that I can relate to others. Uh, I'll give you an example. It just happened today mm. and it was rough. Um, some people down the block from our institute. Oh, yes. Um, I walked in. I see them. I walk my dog every morning before I go to work. It's a business that's just down yeah, the street. Yeah, it's a machine uh, factory shop. What do they call it? Machine yeah. shop. Yeah. I love them. They love me, and they love our dog, Benny, and yeah. he likes being there better than at the institute. But anyway, <laughs> um, we go in every morning, and the first thing that the ladies were so sweet said, did you hear? And I go, hear what? And they said, Sterling was killed on Friday. Sterling was an absolutely embraceable, loving guy. Mm -hmm. I loved him. And he was in a very serious collision on Friday. I read about the collision. It was with the Cal Fire unit mm -hmm. and his Jeep. And he was killed instantly. And I was, I got to say, I was shocked because um, he was a lovely guy. And the whole factory was carrying the grief. But what was really interesting is when they told me I could relate to it better than I ever have before. And I don't mean better more objectively and coldly. I mean as a human being, mm -hmm. relating to the grief. And it turned out that Sterling was the nephew of the owner, Butch, who's a good friend of mine. And I don't usually go in and bother Butch. He's a busy guy. And I went in and just hugged him, and he was he was in tears. Yeah. He, loved, he loved Sterling. Everybody loves Sterling. Yeah. But... That's the empathy now, and the way and the way I respond is real. It's genuine, and yes, I can move back and step back later. But I can tell you, I inside I was resonating. It was a loss, mm -hmm. and everybody there was feeling it. Did they were they going on with their lives? And the answer was yes. And um, I was a little bit taken aback by they were almost too objective about such a, mm. a horrendous loss on Friday. And yet I was able to relate to it as a fellow human being with a heart filled with compassion and empathy and caring and for the family. Um, it was interesting, Benny, who's very, we use him at the Institute, and he comes alongside people, probably the worst, who's ever hurting the worst, that's who he goes to. And he never goes, in, almost never goes into Butcher's office. Benny went right in, and when I walked in, he was st sitting right next to Butch, mm, comforting mm. him. And that's Benny. He knew. And they love Benny. But um, I was even touched by that. He knew, and there were plenty of people hurting in that place. Yeah. But he went to Butch. He knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was touched by it. Um, I find that life deals these very deals heavy blows to us. I yeah. Mean, it's not, we can say it glibly, that's life. It is, but the key is, how do we make sense out of this? Can I just say that one of the things that Jane Brody wrote about is reminding me, she, uh, the, she writes here that the day that her husband died, 
she was uh, scheduled to speak at a conference, yeah, and she right. went ahead and did that. Mm-hmm. And she shared with them what had just happened. And some people thought, she said, I admit that it can strike some as uncaring, mm-hmm. even cold-hearted. Uh, mm-hmm. But what they didn't know is that weeks before he died, my husband asked me not to cancel my professional commitments. Mm. He w- she was respecting his dying wish. She wanted to bring her message to people. And part of this is what we're talking about, is, is finding purpose, finding a meaning yeah. in the suffering and the pain of others. And she was living that that day. That was a hard one to swallow when I read that. Yeah, very. That's tough. Um, there's another one in that book, in that article called uh, a book called "Finding Meaning in the Sixth Stage of Grief" uh, by David Kessler, who was a grief expert himself, and he lost his son by an overdose at 21 years old, and um, he today is a grief counselor because of that. Yes. But he writes that meaning comes through finding a way to sustain your love for the person after their death while you're moving forward with your life. Loss is simply what happens to you in life. Meaning is what you make happen. Why don't you read that again, would you? Yeah, I think that's great. It says, meaning comes through finding a way to sustain your love for the person after their death while you're moving forward in your own life. Loss is simply what happens to you in life. Meaning is what you make happen. That's beautiful. And she's got some other examples here, but just, just incredible. And there was, there was, an, there was yeah. another portion of the article that really jumped out at us too. And which uh, one do you have? Uh, the one that's uh, this is not to say that being able to find meaning can erase grief. Mm-mm. Merely that it can assuage the anguish of grief and help people move forward. Mm-hmm. You want, shall I continue? Yeah. The pain of grief is a natural reaction to the loss of someone you love. But as Mr. Kessler points out, suffering is what our mind does to us. And it can be mitigated by finding meaning in what we've lost. We don't have a lot more time today. This has just flown by. But how would you like to kind of gather together some of the things that we've talked about? Well, you know, he says suffering is just a... a a state of is what our mind does to us I don't agree mm-hmm. I think suffering goes with grief and suffering is part of life um, it's not just what our mind does it's what we we go through in it's life it's real it's yeah real. it's very real yeah. and I don't want it just to be say it's a figment of our mental state and our imagination if he's talking about what we call protracted grieving which goes on and on and on and people suffer just, and they just can't stop suffering. That's different. Um, then they're not completing their grief, and that's where we step in and we help them. But do I believe suffering is part of? I know it is. So before we put that in and say that's just a, a part of your unconscious mind or the way your mind works, I don't accept that. I find that to be a little bit too esoteric and removed. And I'm one of those people when I listen to professionals write this way. Mm-hmm. I know that he it can knows be, what, He may mean something different, that's but right. it's, he could be misunderstood. I would say that's a statement that could be I think suffering does go with it. Yeah. If it's prolonged and people can't get beyond it over a long period of time, something's wrong. And if they can't find some kind of purpose and way to move forward. And meaning 
to move forward and maybe even change their lives for the better, um, then something's wrong. We always help people try to find the purpose and meaning of what they've gone through and watch how they morph and become different people doing different things for the better. And it usually does involve the pain of their trauma and their loss. It always, always, always does. So that's what we want to be part of. Um, if we don't, if people don't do that, then they get very resentful, bitter, embittered toward life. That's a whole different story. But they're talking about a more positive transformation. Yes, I think transformation, so. which we believe in, transformative resilience. We're very big on that, and we feel that um, that this article that we talked about today is excellent. And it just supports what we're talking about. Yes. And if you have anything to share with us, which we would love to hear, uh, if you have a question or something to share, uh, please email us at Jenny at BernsteinInstitute.com or call 707-781-3335. The Survivor's Guide to Life is made possible through a grant from Sonoma Coast Trauma Treatment, a 501c3 public charity that relies entirely on donations from people like you. We hope that you will visit our website and donate. Uh, It is tax deductible. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next time. Thank you.